This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters, joined each week by my co-host, Alicia Jenkins. With each case discussion, we hope to give victims a voice back when they no longer have one. And by doing so, we expose the monsters lurking all around us. Welcome back, everyone. We're coming to the end of spooky season, and that's kind of sad because it is my favorite month, October, the best month ever. Um, And with that, we are coming up on Halloween, of course. So we have a Halloween case for you today. It's one of nightmares, really, when you as a parent think of your child going out trick-or-treating. But the outcome of this case is far more sinister than it seems at first. With that, are you ready for today's case? So we are obviously almost to Halloween, and I love the month of October. It's like the best month ever. But today's case is one that happened on Halloween, and it is one of nightmares where little kids were targeted during a festive night of trick-or-treating. So on the evening of October 31st, 1974, it started off as any other Halloween night for the O'Brien family. Ronald and Danine O'Brien got their two kids, eight-year-old Timothy and five-year-old Elizabeth, ready for Halloween at their home in Deer Park, Texas. Elizabeth was dressed as a princess and Timothy was dressed in a Planet of the Apes costume. And this was a typical Texas family at the time. Ronald worked as an optician, which is someone who makes and supplies eyeglasses and contact lenses, and they were also members of the Baptist church in the area, where Ronald served as a deacon and sang in the choir. So this is not a family that the community would ever imagine to be struck by such an unimaginable crime. Before venturing out for a fun night of door-to-door trick-or-treating, the O'Brien family and the Bates family met up for dinner. Then the dads, Ronald and Jim, would take their kids out. The Bates family also had two children, so between the families, there are four children. While trick-or-treating, all four children receive a large-sized pixie stick. It's about 21 inches in size. Most of you, I'm assuming, will know what these are, but in case you don't, it's basically a stick full of flavored sugar. And it's like a paper-like structure, so you rip the top off and pour the sugar into your mouth. So the kids were also given a fifth pixie stick, but there's only four of them. So upon returning to the Bates family home, Ronald handed the fifth one out to a trick-or-treater that he knew from church, a 10-year-old boy named Whitney Parker. As the O'Brien family was getting ready for bed, Ronald told Timothy and Elizabeth that they were allowed to eat one of their candies before going to sleep. Elizabeth wasn't in the mood, but Timothy was ecstatic as his father helped him open the giant pixie stick. The sugar wasn't exactly powdered and free-flowing as it should have been. It was somewhat clumped together, but Ronald was able to get the stuck sugar dislodged. 
As soon as Timothy poured the sugar into his mouth, he started complaining about the flavor. It didn't taste good. So Ronald grabs his eight-year-old son a glass of Kool-Aid to help wash down what remained in Timothy's mouth. Only minutes later, Ronald recalls his son crying out to him, saying, Daddy, Daddy, my stomach hurts. As Ronald and Daneen ran to help their child, Timothy started convulsing and throwing up. He was fighting to breathe before his little body went limp. Timothy is quickly loaded up into the car as the family races to the hospital. But it was too late. Timothy had died before they could make it. Oh my goodness. I mean, obviously my mind goes to poisoning. Yeah, you're on the right track. (laughs) So on this night, the Harris County prosecutor, Mike Hinton, was working with the police intake. He received a call from the Pasadena Police Department with the news that a little boy had died en route to the hospital. Mike then calls the chief medical examiner of Harris County and asked him to join the case. This medical examiner was Joseph A. Jeskismic. Mike made this decision after a worker at the morgue reported a scent of almonds coming from the deceased boy's mouth. This is a telltale sign of cyanide poisoning. The autopsy confirms what the medical examiner already suspected. A pathologist determined that Timothy consumed enough potassium cyanide to kill multiple grown adults. Testing of the pixie stick would reveal that the top two inches of that stick had been packed with poison. Cyanide is highly toxic, although it can be treated if it's immediately diagnosed and treated within 30 minutes. The poison will cause the patient to die of cardiorespiratory arrest, as well as dysfunction of the medullary centers. I don't know what that is. Do you? Medulla in your brain. Okay. Medulla oblongata. Is that what it is? Isn't that I in a movie, like an Adam Sandler movie or something? They talk about the medulla oblongata. Oh, that's funny. I've n- never heard of it, but that makes sense. So dysfunction of the medullary centers is like dysfunction of the brain. So again, if it's caught and treated really quickly within 30 minutes, you could survive. But Timothy was given so much of this poison that it was impossible to even get him to the hospital in time. He died quickly, far under that 30-minute mark, and although it was quick, that little boy was in a lot of pain during those last minutes of his life. I always, whenever you watch, like, Dateline or anything, don't you feel like when people try to poison, like, their spouse or something, like, it takes, like, a long time? Yeah. Like, they do it over time. Like, arsenic or something, they put, like, little bits in there, and then they feel, like, sick, but they don't die. Yeah. So it uh, must have been quite a bit. They said it enough to kill multiple grown adults. That's crazy. But I mean, I don't know. Maybe cyanide kills you fast. Kills you fast anyway, even if you ingest a little. And sometimes when they're killing them slowly over time, I feel like they're trying to do it little by little so that it's not suspicious. Oh, oh, I see. <laughs> so that they don't end up testing them. Like, oh, they've been sick for a year and now they died. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. So as the morning of November 1st came around, it was urgent that the other four pixie sticks are recovered and the families are notified immediately before any other child consumed this poison. 
Ronald and Daneen obviously confiscated their daughter Elizabeth's candy immediately as the grief of losing their son sets in. The Bates family was able to turn pixie sticks over to the police before their children consumed any, and this relief was unlike any other that they had ever felt. Were all the pixie sticks contaminated? Could their children have died just as easily as Timothy had? Remember, the extra pixie stick was handed out to a young boy named Whitney Parker. And when his parents were notified of the scare, they ran into their son's room to check on him because they figured he had been sleeping all night. To their horror, the giant pixie stick laid in Whitney's hand. But thankfully, he was alive, just sleeping peacefully. An exhausted Whitney had been trying to get that pixie stick open but he fell asleep before succeeding, which would be so scary. Like he was holding it, but it was like a big one. So it was hard to get open and he just must have been trying and then fell asleep. Luckily for him. Yeah. So for his parents, the absolute terror that they had to have felt knowing that if that pixie stick had also been contaminated, their son was close to a horrific death. Police were able to determine that all five pixie sticks had been contaminated with cyanide. It was only by chance that none of the other children had ingested the poison. In fact, it was the tampering with the sticks that kept Whitney from being able to open his. Upon examination, it was seen that the sticks had been opened and then stapled back shut once this monster was finished poisoning candy that was meant for children. Whitney was not strong enough to pry open the staples that Halloween night. I'm sure the Parker and Bates families shed lots of tears that November 1st day after the realization set in of what could have happened. Among their relief, they also felt deep sadness for their friends and neighbors who were not experiencing the same relief they were. The O'Brien family did not luck out. Their son, Timothy, was gone within an instant, and now their world was changed forever. Eight-year-old Timothy Mark O'Brien, born on April 5, 1966, was buried in Forest Park Cemetery in Houston, Texas, following a memorial service in early November 1974. Ronald performed a hymn in his son's honor that moved the crowd to tears. This was a devastating loss for the community and especially for the O'Brien family. Within the first days following Timothy's death, police were working hard to narrow down which house handed out these pixie sticks. This was a crime that needed to be solved quickly. The heinous nature and fear of the unknown was palpable. On November 1st, Ronald O'Brien walked police along the route he had taken with his son and daughter that Halloween night but he couldn't quite recall exactly which house gave out the candy. He recalled that it was a house that took a while to answer the door. The lights were off, but the O'Brien and Bates children still tried to knock. However, when there was not an immediate answer, they moved on to the next house. Ronald had lingered back from the group to see if this home would in fact answer, and they did. He explains to police that he didn't get a good look at the person who gave out the candy because the door was just open slightly and an arm reached out with the pixie sticks. Ronald grabbed them for the kids and then caught up to the group where he gave one to each of them. 
And then remember, the fifth was handed out to Whitney Parker once they returned home. So this information wasn't exactly helpful. There was no description of the perp, and Ronald couldn't narrow down which house it was. However, over the next few days, Ronald pondered back on that night, and when police came to walk him through a second time, his memory was jogged. He points them to the home of Courtney Mellon. This is now their prime suspect, and on November 4, 1974, just days after Timothy's death, the Pasadena police arrest Courtney Mellon at his place of work, Houston's William Hobby P. Airpoint. Oh my gosh, I can't talk. That was a man. I thought it might have been a woman. Courtney Mellon. Yeah, a man. It's like, what? <laughs> a man. I said his place of work weird. Houston's William Hobby P. Airport. I said airpoint. Airport. Oh, okay. Now, there's an arrest, but police really jumped the gun here, unfortunately. I think there was so much anxiety in the air and they wanted so badly to get whatever a-hole did this off the streets. So they just, they had a suspect and without really much evidence, they just arrest him. But after being arrested in front of all of his co-workers, Courtney Mellon is able to provide an airtight alibi. He was working Halloween night there at the same airport he was arrested. His timesheets and co-workers were able to confirm this alibi. So with a bit of embarrassment, the police release Courtney Mellon and they're back at the drawing board. The further they dive into this case, the more they are drawn to one conclusion. And it's one that none of them wanted to believe. This crime turns out to be even more heinous than anyone had imagined. The Pasadena Police Department discovers that Ronald O'Brien had very recently taken out life insurance policies on both Timothy and Elizabeth. Between his two children, the policies totaled $60,000. $10,000 on each child was taken out in January of 1974, while another $20,000 was taken out on each child in September of 1974 just one month before Halloween. The dad? The dad. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Had taken out all these life insurance policies on his kids, both of them, right before. And remember, his daughter also got a pixie stick, but she just didn't want to eat it. So it turns out that Ronald was more than $100,000 in debt. The 30-year-old man was also about to be fired from his optics office because the employer suspected that he had been stealing money. And the morning following his son's death, Ronald immediately called the insurance company at 9 a.m. to collect the money. So this goes to show that Ronald didn't only intend to kill that 8-year-old son, but he also hoped to kill his 5-year-old daughter with her pixie stick. And I think the other kids were just as a distraction, so it wasn't only his two kids that died. So there was poison. In all the sticks. So he did not care if all five of those kids died. I think he wanted it kind of scattered. So he gave? Yeah, so he gave his friends, two kids, the pixie sticks, his two kids, and then he handed out that fifth one to a kid that was just trick-or-treating, who Ronald actually knew from church. So five kids he knew. Did so the kids five. know that he handed it to they them? They knew he gave it, but he said he got it from a house. 
Oh, oh. So they had knocked and then he was like stayed back and then he caught up and was like, oh, they did answer the door, actually. They gave us these pixie sticks. Okay. Now, if that's not suspicious enough, the police obtained items from the O'Brien's home while serving a search warrant. Scissors with a plastic residue matching the pixie sticks were found. There was a sheet where Ronald had written out all of his bills, matching very closely to the amount he would receive from both of the insurance policies. A witness from a chemical company there in Houston named David Lee Jackson comes forward to report that a man wearing a beige or blue smock like a doctor came in to inquire about purchasing cyanide. But he left when he was told the smallest amount he could obtain was five pounds. This witness couldn't identify Ronald specifically, but that doctor-like smock description matched what uniform Ronald wore to work as an optician. Ronald was also attending community college, and a professor comes forward to report that he recalls Ronald asking questions about what's more lethal, cyanide or another poison. In hindsight, this was extremely suspicious. Ronald also failed a polygraph, which doesn't mean much in guilt or innocence to me, but it adds on to all of the evidence stacking up against him. On top of this, family and friends started to come forward to describe how odd Ronald was acting during his son's funeral. Jim Bates says that Ronald barely looked at his young son in the casket and walked around almost acting unaware that his son was even laying there. Jim says that Ronald even bumped into the casket at one point and remember how Ronald sang this hymn that brought everyone to tears. Well, it turns out that following the funeral, Ronald wanted to play the recording of this performance, but his family members, who were literally grieving and already watched him perform, they were not in the mood to stay up late and relive the memorial service. Ronald became agitated that his family would not want to watch his performance again, making his son's funeral about himself. Oh my gosh, that was a shocker. His own dad. For money. Isn't that so frustrating? Like, probably everyone was terrified. Like, didn't let any of their kids eat any of the candy they got from Halloween. And then it turns out this guy's... This guy wants to kill his own kid. It wasn't anyone handing out candy. And was it going to be both his kids? Yeah. And it's like, this is one of those cases that they said plays into, like, a lot of people being fearful on Halloween that like candy will be contaminated, but they said it's really not a concern in general. Like they never have reports of that every year. It's something like very, very rare. Okay. You know, like there's been a couple incidences here and there, but as in this one, it's not a random person just trying to kill kids. No. Yeah. Yeah. Like, another one was, like, when some parents sprinkled heroin on their kid's candy, but really the kid had died of a heroin overdose because he got into his uncle's heroin, and the family was just trying to cover it up and say, like, it got on his candy. And I listened to this one thing. I don't remember where it was. And they're like, people aren't going around give, putting their drugs onto kids' candy. They want those drugs for themselves. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, they're not just giving that away. That is true. And, like, another one was this, like, older lady who had, like, severe mental disorder and she didn't hand out anything that would kill anyone but she was handing out like dog treats and like other stuff that would make kids sick and so it's like these random cases that make people panic on Halloween that their candy's gonna be contaminated which I mean definitely check that it has never been opened because these pixie sticks were obviously opened prior and then they were stapled back shut that would be a red flag be like um yeah this is not how they come yeah Like, make sure everything's sealed well and looks like original packaging. (gasps) But besides that, they say it's not actually a huge concern or something that's often reported. Now, as for Ronald, his background wasn't ideal when looking for a man made of honesty. Over the last 10 years, Ronald had worked for 21 different companies, and he was fired from each and every one due to negligence or fraudulent behavior, which 21 companies in 10 years, that's at least getting fired every six months. That's a lot. Yeah, that's not good. Ronald was a con. AETV.com cites Johnny Johnston, a forensic psychologist and private investigator. She says that poisoners lack empathy. Their crimes are premeditated, cold, and calculating. This is also a method used by someone who is cunning and sneaky, not someone who is normally seen as aggressive. And because of this, they're able to hide their evil easier and fool those around them because they're not an aggressive person or they're not someone you're typically scared of. So, just five days after murdering his own eight-year-old son, Ronald Clark O'Brien was arrested on November 5th, 1974. He maintained his innocence, and his defense team would argue that the poisoning was done by an unknown perpetrator. The prosecution called multiple friends, family, and co-workers who testified against Ronald. According to Vice.com, Mike Hinton recalls Ronald loving the attention he received during his trial. There was no remorse apparent. Ronald's trial took place less than a year after Timothy's murder, in May and June of 1975. In late May, Danine O'Brien takes the stand against her own husband. According to a news archive from the New York Times, Danine avoided making eye contact with her husband. She told the courtroom that while her husband beat on the wall and asked why an eight-year-old had to die, he didn't shed any tears. Danine didn't know that Ronald had taken out two more life insurance policies on their children the month before Halloween. She did know about the two $10,000 policies taken out in January of 1974, but she didn't agree to them. In fact, she tried to discourage Ronald from taking the policies out at all because she didn't think they could afford them. And then just as a mother, I'm sure like I was thinking about it and I just don't even really see a reason to take life insurance out on my children. Because it's like my children aren't adding to my income or my lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so we had it, like, I have always had it offered, like, through my work. Mm-hmm. And so it was, like, $10,000, like, in case your child dies to pay for, like, funeral costs. Funeral and stuff. So yeah. I always, like, selected that option, but I never got, like, 
another policy. Yeah, like you didn't go out of your way to get a policy. No. And I was going to say, like, I could see it for people, like you said, funeral or, you know, like they're obviously going to need to take an extended time off work. But yeah, something like $10,000 is going to cover it. I don't think you need to go back and keep getting more. (laughs) No. Like, I don't think you need $60,000 when your kid dies. But $10,000 might be helpful. And I don't know. Like, I'm sure there's all sorts of reasons. And most people who are taking out life insurance on their kids are probably not murderers. But like $60,000 is not that much. That's the thing. Like people will kill over anything. That's crazy. Over such a small amount. Like you're each kid of yours was worth $30,000 to you. That's how much their life mattered. Like you couldn't pay me any amount of money to not want my kid here. Not any amount. It's so weird. Anyway, the life insurance agent, he testifies that Ronald had told him he discussed the policies with his wife before purchasing them, but she was not there to confirm what Ronald told him. Danine testifies that she only learned of the additional policies after Timothy had died. On June 3, 1975, jury deliberations start. It only took them 46 minutes to determine that Ronald O'Brien was guilty on one charge of capital murder for eight-year-old Timothy and four charges of attempted murder for the other four children who survived, including Ronald's own daughter, Elizabeth. Just one hour after this verdict, it's determined that Ronald will be sentenced to execution by the electric chair. This is Texas, so they did and do have the death penalty. Now, when a death penalty is given, the defendant is allowed multiple appeals. It takes a long time. So over the course of the next nine years, Ronald would maintain his innocence and use all 10 appeals. But none of them let him slip out of his sentence. However, by the time he is to be executed, lethal injection had become a thing, so he would not be put into the electric chair. So honestly, he got off a little easier just receiving lethal injection. On March 31st, 1984, Ronald Clark O'Brien was executed using lethal injection. Born on October 19th, 1944, he was 39 years old when he dies. Unfortunately, he is also buried in Forest Park East Cemetery, but I'm assuming and hoping it is not near Timothy because that's the same cemetery Timothy's buried. I would imagine that Ronald is off on in his own area, maybe by his parents or something. I don't know. Maybe just not by anybody, hopefully. So did his wife end up like knowing? Yeah, she does not believe in his innocence at all. Okay. So Ronald makes a statement just before just before this execution and he says, quote, "What is about to transpire in a few moments is wrong. However, we as human beings do make mistakes and errors. This execution is one of those wrongs, yet doesn't mean our whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I would forgive all who have taken part in any way in my death." And it's like well, Ronald, A, we do not forgive you. And all I have to say about your statement is like, shut up. We're fine with your death. Yeah. 
We actually don't think it's wrong. Nobody feels bad. It's not a mistake. And even though we do have a dysfunctional justice system, um, this was a right. This was something they did right. (laughs) They made the right choice here. It's like he preaches about this death sentence being wrong, but he never admits to the ultimate wrong that he did when he murdered his own child for money. He would have murdered both of his kids if he could have. And yeah, he's sick. So while I'm not necessarily a death penalty advocate due to obviously the many innocent people who have and could be executed, I am always still happy when a person like this is taken off this earth. Like when somebody you know did it, I'm like, yeah, you know, like I wish Chris Watts got the death penalty. There's I wish Lori Daybell got the death penalty. There's people I'm happy with getting it, even if I'm not necessarily for it. I know that's how I am, too. I'm like, yeah, they probably should get punished for that. But then it's like, but should I should I believe that they should get killed? (laughs) There's certain ones that I'm like, bye, I could actually do it myself for Chris Watts. Like, I could actually watch him be tortured. And I feel like I'm a very empathetic person. So I actually can empathize with a lot of people, like a lot of things. And then like logically, you know, like sometimes I can feel bad even for the bad person. But then I logically remind myself that like no you don't feel bad because they're not a good person yeah but there's certain ones where I just have no empathy like uh. so poor Daneen O'Brien she had her world completely rocked after losing her son and within that grief she had to find out that her own husband the father of her children was the monster behind the madness The way this would be just soul-crushing is indescribable, but Daneen kept pushing through each treacherous day for one person, her five-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, who she still had to live for. Up until Ronald was about to be executed, Daneen really didn't want to be interviewed. But just before Ronald's execution, she stated, quote, I'm glad it's coming to an end. I don't think Ronald is a sick or insane person, but he is perverted. I don't hate Ronald. I just feel nothing. She goes on to say that her concern through all these years was never for herself, and it was always for Elizabeth. Six months before the execution, Elizabeth, who was 15 years old at that time, had wanted to reach out to Ronald on death row, but Daneen said absolutely not. Like, that's not happening. Daneen says, quote, she has no ties to him. I think she has struggled through that, but she accepts the fact that he intended to kill her too. We we refer to him in this house as Ronald, and he is her biological father only and nothing more. Before Ronald went to trial, Daneen tried to believe that he was innocent. She visited him at the Harris County Jail every week, and she remembers him crying, telling her that he was innocent. But she knew in her bones that he was lying. Daneen actually believes she was the first target Ronald intended to murder for money because the couple actually had an appointment with an insurance agent before Timothy's death. This was to take out an insurance policy on her. However, the couple ends up unable to pay the premiums for the policy, so the appointment was canceled. In hindsight, 
there were signs throughout the marriage that Ronald was a liar and a con man. Before Timothy was murdered, Danine and Ronald were having a conversation where Ronald quoted the Bible story about Abraham's feelings when he was asked to sacrifice his own son. She said that knowing Ronald and living with him for 10 years, she knew the idea of him committing this murder was possible. Quote, I know in my deepest heart of hearts that he is responsible for my son's death. Danine did divorce Ronald while he was in prison, and five years after his conviction, she remarried. It was a fresh start to a new life. The lifelong pain that Ronald put on Danine and Elizabeth to not only lose Timothy, but to accept that this man they once loved was responsible is something that almost no one can imagine enduring. Eight-year-old Timothy Mark O'Brien was a precious little boy. He had golden hair and the sweetest cheeks surrounding a big smile. He was smart and lovable and kind. And the only thing about his death that I can look at in any positive way is that he was never aware that he was betrayed by his own dad. I'm sure he never suspected in those minutes of agony that his father was responsible for his pain. Aww. That is so sad. I know. And how can you watch your kid do that? Just to like give that to them and know they're going to die and know that like it's going to be painful. I know. What do you do? Oh, it's okay. These people, I just, I've said it a million times. I will never understand. How do we have people like that in the world? I don't know. My brain doesn't get it. I know. I think that's why like learning of these things is so fascinating if that's even the right word because it's like how do you understand the psyche of someone like this and I think the answer is you'll never understand because we are normal human beings who cannot think that way understand it yeah that is the story of Timothy O'Brien don't let your kids eat pixie sticks mostly don't do this to your kids (laughs) since it came from his own dad Thanks for listening. I research, write, host, and edit this show. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins. Our palate cleanser is given by Charlie Waters. And all our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Make sure to find our podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Keep listening and share these episodes with your friends. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters. Today we're going to be doing doing our palate cleanser about Halloween because it's almost Halloween. You know the famous candy corn? Did you know it was first called chicken feed? The box of candy had a tagline that said, something worth crowing for. And now we know that candy as candy corn. Happy Halloween! An organization I wanted to highlight today is SaveTheChildren.org. You can go to that website and find all the information about this nonprofit organization. They work in the United States and all around the world to give children a healthy start in life and the opportunity to learn and the protection from harm. So their whole focus is on children. They're doing a lot of good work. And if you visit their website, you can see what they're doing, how they're doing it, and you can donate or share their organization to spread the word.